0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Joe Uvoli podcast. This podcast is about talking to people who have dedicated their lives to the game of lacrosse and learning about who they are, how they got to where they are today, and what they do to improve themselves and their teams. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Joe Uvoli, and if you want to be able to ask questions to upcoming guests and suggest topics or interviews you'd like to hear, subscribe to my newsletter at JoeUvoli.com. Today's guest needs no introduction. This is part one of my interview with Coach Tierney from Denver University. Coach Bill Tierney, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be on. Awesome. Well, let's get started as I get started with all the other guests. What got you started in lacrosse?
1: Well, it was interesting. You know, I was a baseball player in high school, and uh, then I got to uh, Portland State where I went to college. And it was... a uh, awfully cold and my uh my elbow was sore from throwing a lot of curveballs as a kid and my roommate was a was a lacrosse goalie so he handed me a stick instead of starting shooting i think back in those days the great part about it was that we had freshman teams so it was just freshmen competing at that point and so a lot of guys could could still back then start a sport like lacrosse and not feel overwhelmed that uh that it was just going to be too much of an uphill battle. In fact, on my freshman team, I think uh, nine of the 18 of us had played lacrosse before. So felt comfortable with that, loved the game, and uh, you know, and, and, and became a passion. Uh, my goal when I went to college was to end up being the head football coach at my high school, Levittown Memorial, which I eventually became. But uh-huh. I'll talk about that later. And when that point came, uh, I was too entrenched in lacrosse to stick with football. I gotcha.
0: Got so, so, once you started playing, it, did it automatically become a passion? And, and what were some of the things that you did? Um, I guess sort of to um, to get better as a new player.
1: Well, it it became a passion, uh, it, partly because of how great the game is, but also mm-hmm. I always point to this one day in my life, which was after freshman year. Uh, I can showed up for. I play, also played freshman football in college, and I showed up for the for the varsity football, you know, uh, preseason in my sophomore year, and got stopped at the door by the head coach and told, uh, no, you're too small, you're done with football. <laughs> so at that point, I had a, I, I had one, you know, I had a choice to either bemoan uh, that fact and go into a shell or take that extra time that I now had for lacrosse and, and put it to good use. And mm-hmm. thankfully, uh, between some great friends like my best friend Ray Rostan and some other Great guys that were around me. We uh, we got to work and were able to make the, the lacrosse team at Cortland. Uh, from those years on,
0: gotcha. And was it? Uh, I mean, was it a situation where you were carrying lacrosse stick around all the time, or or would you just say it was something that um you know you, you focused on school during the day, then you went to lacrosse and you were done with it.
1: Yeah I th- I think I think it, it stemmed from the fact that I still knew after freshman year that I was still behind we had a lot of great players on our team and uh, mm-hmm. in, that were older and and even in our year and so we knew we knew if we were going to even make the varsity team in our sophomore year we had a lot of work to do so uh, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was pretty obsessive you know we, we got after it and we Spend a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of cold nights at Cortland, but luckily we found a way to sneak into the field house at midnight and uh, <laughs> and uh, turn one light on and, uh, you know, play little games to, to help our sticks get better. And we blessed uh, that Coach Emma saw something in me to keep, keep me on the team that year. Gotcha. Very cool.
0: Very cool. So um, <clears throat> it sounds like uh, you weren't recruited for lacrosse, but, um, but what made you actually decide to go to Cortland?
1: Well, I went to Cortland for a lot of reasons number one i i want, I knew I wanted to be a physical education teacher and I wanted to coach so mm-hmm. th- those two things were were given as I mentioned earlier you know I was at that point thinking more of more along the football lines. My older sister was at Springfield College at the time and she was a physical education major and at the time springfield Cost three thousand dollars, and Cortland cost twenty one hundred. So uh, that, and the fact that when I visited Cortland, a really nice-looking, beautiful woman uh, told me I should go there, and so probably for a lot of a lot of reasons, uh, decided on Courtland, and, and and thankful, and and feel blessed to have have attended such a great place.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Sounds like uh, sounds like you made the right decision. Um, so it sounds like coaching was something that, uh, that you wanted to do for a very long time. Um, when did you realize that you wanted to get started with coaching?
1: Well, it's funny. My, my, you know, a lot of us that grew up in Levittown, our, our, our parents worked very hard. Um, mm-hmm. my mom was a school nurse and my dad was a beer truck driver and all my dad wanted me to do was go to college. He mm-hmm. thought I should be a an accountant, but, uh, cause I was good in math, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, in in that process of growing up, whether it had been uh, little League baseball or midget basketball or in my memory, clearest memory, was midget football, and then all the way through junior high and high school to, to my coaches in those sports, especially uh, Phil Wolfe and, and Nick Belitzis at Levittown Memorial, uh, and mm-hmm. having all these great coaches throughout, um, I knew how much they had impacted me. And I knew that that was that was the way I wanted to go. I, I knew I wanted to teach, and uh, and I you know I, I I thought it would be fun, but I my real passion was I wanted to coach kids, and that stemmed from the great coaches I had had growing up.
0: Gotcha. Do you remember the moment when it sort of clicked for you that yeah, I want to go forward and be a lacrosse coach?
1: A lacrosse coach? Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess so. I, you know, I mean, it was interesting, as I mentioned. Um, you know, I spent I spent four years in college playing lacrosse, one year playing football and getting cut then after that. Mm-hmm. Still coached football. I, I, I student taught and coached at Ithaca High School. I volunteered over at Cortland High School. And so I I, I, I still had that football thing in my mind. And then um, loved coaching them both when I got out of school. Really, uh, um, I, I guess it was because I, I we became a little more successful in lacrosse at an earlier time. Hmm. Uh, eventually in in the fall of, uh, in the fall of 1981, I became the head football coach at, at Levittown Memorial. And hmm. by that time, my passion for lacrosse was just so great that when, uh, again, my best friend Ray Rostan was the head coach at RIT. Hmm. He left late in that summer to, um, to go over to Ithaca college. And so, uh, the job at RIT opened in December of that year. So after finally one year of being head football coach, uh, uh, got an opportunity because no one else, you know, not a lot of guys could apply for a college coaching job in December. Uh, two <laughs> days recommendation through mm. some guys that you, you know, you may remember the names, Eddie Purcell, Tom Sill.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: some of these guys were already at RIT. So they pushed the AD to hire me. And, uh, mm. you know, um, had a, My oldest daughter, Courtney, was two weeks old, and so I had the two boys, so I had a, a wife and three children, all under the age of three, and we moved to Rochester, New York in January. So uh, huh. I guess the passion, it was pretty clear there that I wanted to be a college lacrosse coach.
0: <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So um, so let's, let's back up a little bit. When um, <clears throat> when you graduated Coraline, you were part of that, that national championship team there, um, and then you went on to coach high school. When you uh, you went on to coach high school lacrosse. um, Basically, were you just modeling your coaching after uh, you know, like Coach Phil Wolf and and Coach Emmer, Um, or were you uh, you know were there other coaches that you looked up to and modeled your coaching after at that point?
1: Yeah, I think when you play for when you played for Coach Emmer, um, Mm. you you become a model of his style very quickly. He was Mm -hmm. detailed to the point, very tough. But very, but also very caring of his players. So I, you know, I was blessed to have Coach Emmer for two years, and then he left for Washington and Lee, and, and uh, Coach Chuck Winters took over my senior year, and we won a national championship that year, as you mentioned. But yeah. uh, you know, and then and then when I started coaching, I was really lucky. Uh, Buddy Klumenacker, who's still to this day the head football coach at Farmingdale High School, uh, hired me as his assistant lacrosse coach at Great Neck South, and it was under his tutelage that I really got my feet wet as a high school coach Mm -hmm. and then uh, played one year of pro lacrosse and then four four years was lucky to get hired at Great Neck South to be the head coach before coming back to Levittown Memorial and being their head lacrosse coach for two years. So Mm -hmm. through those years, um, with the, with the inspiration of coach Hammer, coach Winters, and then what Buddy taught me about being a, a high school coach, uh, you know, I think all those things started getting me on the path of developing partly from what I learned from those coaches and also partly from uh, uh, kind of what I taught myself as a bench warmer at Cortland for most of my time, <laughs> time that, uh, you, you know, on uh, how to how to motivate and, and and how to get guys to do the right things and, mm-hmm. and learned a lot about the X's and O's as well.
0: Yeah. Did, uh, did you ever reach out to these coaches, um, you know, while you were sort of learning the ropes, uh, you know? and uh, sort of like a mentor capacity.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the, the beauty of lacrosse is that it's, and still to this day, uh, I'm thankful that it's the same way is that, you know, young high school coaches, uh, you know, uh, can reach out to, to other coaches. But when I was back there, you know, you had, uh, you had Joe Cuso and you had Bobby Hartraff with a, you know, at Farmingdale and Joe Ward Melville, um, Dan McCall at stage, all these guys that you could always ask questions to. Certainly, calls to Coach Emmer and Coach Winters. Uh, you know, when, yeah. when times, you know, when I became a head coach, and and by then, you know, having played on Long Island with the Long Island Lacrosse Club, and and now you're talking about guys like Alan Lowe and uh, Stan Kowalski and all these guys. There was just so many men that you could turn to that it 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 made it uh it made you feel. You know, I was still young enough to play, so you could get to know those guys better. But you know, everybody had ideas, and and it allowed you to develop your own ideas. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I as you know, Joe, a, a lot of a lot of lacrosse, uh, uh, or not much of lacrosse, I guess I'd say, is original ideas. We all steal from <laughs> each other and then put our own little own little touch on it. And yeah. so, uh, I was blessed to have all those all those men be uh, be willing to be mentors of yeah. me. Uh, you know, especially buddy uh, in, in those days
0: that's cool yeah that's definitely the best part about lacrosse is, um and it's sort
1: of
0: it's sort of been shown to me over these past couple of weeks as I've been putting the podcast together reaching out to literally anybody that I knew over the past 10 15 years um, yourself included um, you know you reach out and I immediately got a response back from most people being like, yep, yeah, no problem. We can talk whenever you want to. And it's just, uh, lacrosse is such a, a tight-knit community um, that you can really, you can reach out to anyone and you can get help and information from somebody at any time. It really makes it a great sport.
1: <clears throat> yeah, no question. Yeah. No question about that. So, um, <clears throat> so let's sort of go
0: uh, not to your first head coaching job in college. I, I want to talk about, you know, your assistant coaching job while you were at, um, or you were at JHU for a few years. Um, as you know, an assistant coach, you sort of, uh, you sort of went to the the head coach in college and you went back to the assistant in JHU. Um, what were some of the things that you learned those first, those first few years as an assistant coach at Hopkins?
1: Well, you know, I hadn't been an assistant, uh, except for that one year in high school back in, in 74. So, uh, I'd been a head coach, and you know, in those days, you didn't have a lot of assistant coaches. So my three years at RIT, I had a guy named Mike Greco who was my part-time assistant, but basically doing everything by myself. So mm-hmm. getting to Hopkins, and then all of a sudden, I think we had nine or ten coaches on our staff at that, at that point. I was <laughs> the, uh, I was the, uh, in quotes, the the first assistant coach, yeah. but the truth of the matter was, he was I was the tenth mo- most important coach. You know, uh, it just. Uh, and every one of those guys went to Hopkins, and so I had a lot to learn. I had a I didn't realize how much lacrosse I didn't know mm-hmm. until I uh, until my first conversation with Freddie Smith. And a lot of people don't know about Freddie Smith, but in my mind, Freddie Smith is the best defensive coach to ever walk the earth. And uh, at the time, Freddie, when I took the job at Hopkins, Freddie was about 60 years old. And uh, unfortunately, in our final year in, in 87, when we won the national championship, Freddie passed away that summer, but um I learned a lot so much about lacrosse in general, you know, just the x's and O's stuff but uh but also about being under someone else, you know Coach Zimmerman uh, I'll always be indebted to donford and and Bob Scott, who was the a d at the time for hiring me at hopkins mm-hmm. um and uh but I also had to be a soccer coach there, and I didn't know That's right. anything about soccer. Oh, and so that was an interesting part of, of my assistant coach's experience at Hopkins was being the head soccer coach. And I think had just as much of an impact on me getting the job at Princeton as, as my lacrosse coaching did at Hopkins. Because uh, other than my last year at Hopkins when Freddie was sick, uh, you know, I, I was really good at picking up balls and listening to guys and, uh, and you know, helping with scouting reports and stuff. But my yeah. input wasn't wasn't that great you know yeah Yeah. so um, I think that I think I always tell people the most important thing I learned as an assistant coach at Hopkins is to trust my assistants Mm. you know I tell my assistants all the time that all all I uh, you know ask you to do is if you don't agree with me with something come into the office let's battle it out let's talk it out I'll I'll always give you guys the benefit of the doubt I'll go with your ideas Mm. but either way when we get out on that field we got to be singing the same song and yep. and uh and, and Don Zimmerman taught me that. Those other coaches taught me that. There were lots of things that I didn't know when I was there that I maybe didn't agree with. Uh in fact I remember uh presenting to Zim what what eventually became known as the, the Princeton defense. Huh. And uh at the time it was the wrong the wrong thing for Hopkins, but he listened to all that and input from Freddie and, and all that just just made me a better coach, and so knowing what it was like to be an assistant, win two of three national championships those those three years, uh, allowed me to be confident as a head coach that I would always respect my assistant coaches, uh, their family life, their their beliefs, and also respect them. Uh, that they, you know, there's lots of ways to skin this cat, and uh,
0: yeah,
1: and young guys have great ideas too, and and hence I think. All those assistants I had at Princeton, and then certainly with Trevor and Matt Brown here, and Dylan Sheridan, and now John Orson, uh, I feel I feel very confident that I've given them, uh, you know, leeway enough to express their ideas, uh, to be feel like they've had impact on our program, and for me to learn from them as well. Gotcha, gotcha. So
0: you said something that I that I'm very interested in, and I want to touch on a little bit. It, it you mentioned. Um, you uh, you approach Coach Zimmerman, which with what would be known as the Princeton defense. Um, so that means that you uh, you came up with the idea for that defense while you were an assistant coach. Um, how did that come about?
1: Well, it's interesting. When I was at um, when I was at Levittown, kind of developed this defense. Uh, just because we had some great players, you know Eddie Purcell and Tommy Sill and all these midfielders. We had just a bunch of great athletes, a lot of college lacrosse playing guys, and uh, and Larry Quinn in the goal. Yeah, you know who's, you know I feel blessed to have coached who I believe are the the two best goalies. That ever played the game, and Larry Quinn and Scott Blue So, and I was mm-hmm. more blessed with Larry because I had him as my high school colleague for two years. <laughs> um, so we, you know, when I was at Levittown, what we used to do was a little bit different um, than than the, the quotes Princeton defense was. We always we never let a guy run more than two or three steps with the ball without double teaming him from his from his backside, you mm-hmm. know, and so. The rule was if you saw a guy's big numbers and he had the ball, you, you just went and double teamed him. And, uh, and we were switching hands with the defenseman. We were rolling them back to the middle. Everything that you could do was wrong, except <laughs> that except we put a lot of pressure on guys through slides and double teams. Mm-hmm. Then fast forward to my years, and I did the same thing at RIT, and we were pretty successful there too. Mm-hmm. But then when I got to Hopkins, I learned from Freddie about you know, being a little bit more sane, uh, Hopkins at the time, and you know, played what they call the seven defense, which includes the six defensive players and the goalie being a part of that. Yeah. And you know, this idea of sliding from the crease, you know, uh, hopefully having guys go down the side a little bit, uh, forcing the inside roll and and coming across the crease. So I got a little of that from uh, from Freddie, and so. When I finally got my, my chance at Princeton, my first two years, we, we, I tried to stick with the Hopkins defense, but we found out very quickly in my first couple of years at Princeton, we just didn't have the talent to do that. Uh-huh. So, I, so I instituted kind of a hybrid of Freddie's 7 defense with my concept of uh, early, uh, high-pressure slides and double teams, and it eventually worked into being the Princeton defense.
0: Huh. Very cool. Very cool. I'm curious, could, could you, uh, could you go a little bit deeper into to what you would consider uh, your defensive style? Cause f- from what I remember, um, it's more about, uh, well, so for example, I, I remember watching you, um, I remember watching you coach the USA team. I think it was 98. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Yep. Um, I remember going to one of your practices and I remember, I, th- I actually think it was the first one, um, it was at Farmingdale and Farmingdale
1: you, College. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yep. And um, you had, uh, I guess, you brought the team together and you started off with one on ones, and right. everybody, you know, was trying to look great. They're all being overly aggressive, um, and you stopped the one on ones after a couple of ones, and you basically went against. I forgot who who went against you, but you said, "All right, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna guard you," and basically what you did was you just forced them down an alley. You basically just forced them down the side. And then I remember you said what I just did there was better than anything you guys have done since you've been out here. And that basically I mean, that stuck in my head because that made it seem like there's a very simple way to play defense. It's not about being aggressive. It's not about attacking the guy that you're going after. It's about basically controlling him and trying to make him do what you want him to do. Is is, is that correct? Is that basically how you would sum up That's, uh, your individual it, defense?
1: You're amazing me, Joe, because I think you're the only, you and I are the only guys that remember that. I'll add I'll <laughs> add one more piece I'll add one more piece of that because I know exactly what happened. At the time we weren't sure if Casey Powell was gonna play midfield for us or attack. Mm-hmm. And so my point my point of emphasis to these guys was I Casey at the time was playing attack and I wanted to show them how ridiculously easy it was I said, Casey, you come here and play defense. After I demonstrated what you said, yep. I said, Casey, you come here and play defense. All you have to do now is make sure that guy gets down the side. Yep. And Casey Powell, did, you know, one of the greatest offensive players to ever play the game, and he's still proving that point, yep. stood there. The guy dodged him. He gave him a little bump, and the guy went down the side. And I looked at the rest, and I said, there you go. There Casey is. can do it, you can all do it. <laughs> now, the the. The caveat to the story is I had a lot of guys I respected on that team, John DiTomaso and uh, Pat McCabe and and Brian Volker and, and Joe Bresci. Mm-hmm. And we eventually got to the point where in the short amount of time we had, I couldn't teach a college defense to, in quotes, pros. You know, yeah, and, they, yeah, yeah. They, and they, there was no pro league at the time, but the the best club players out there. So we came to a real happy medium with that team. Uh, uh, because we knew that that Volks and 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 those guys were going to have to they were going to have to cover the gates, you know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, you know, so we came to that. But you're you're absolutely right. Your memory's great. Is that um, that defense starts every time? I, every year we start we're teaching that defense. It starts with a one-on-one, and it starts with that exact same message that you don't have to cover your guy. Uh, all you have to do is get them where we want
0: them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember that moment very well. Um, well, specifically because I was an attackman and I remember thinking at that moment, actually I learned something at that moment because it was the first time that I ever really heard somebody speak from the other side where you know, somebody's teaching defense rather than offense. And it stuck in my mind that if I actually, uh, if I learned what the defense wanted me to do, I have an advantage right there. Um, so I specifically, I'll never forget that moment for as long as I live. It was such an impactful part of my lacrosse career. But, um, but anyway, I, I want to I wanna go back to, you know, while you were an assistant coach. Um, so I'm curious, it, it sounded like, um, you know, you were obviously putting your ideas forward and, and obviously anybody who's an assistant coach, um, I'd say 99% of them, they want to move up and they want to become a head coach. Um, So uh, this is sort of a two-part question. One, what would you consider uh, makes a good assistant coach? And then what would you recommend to coaches that are assistant coaches right now and want to move up? Um, You know, how do you recommend, what steps do you recommend they take to sort of get that head coaching job?
1: Uh, It's it's maybe one of the best questions I've ever been asked, Joe. It's (laughs) it's really important that the first and foremost and this will always be the case if, mm-hmm. if if they want this scenario to work, like you said, first and foremost, being loyal to the head coach, mm-hmm. even in at the times where you disagree with because the assistant coaches that that think they're smarter than the head coaches, or the assistant coaches to go out on the field and start saying things to the kids that might cut, you know, the, to the integrity of the head coach because they think that's cool or that might make them more popular with those with those players, they're not gonna last long. They're not gonna last long in life, they're not gonna last long as a head coach, they're not gonna because what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. If you act like that, you're gonna you're gonna get it, you know, at at some point. So that's um, number one's loyalty. Mm -hmm. Number two is don't be a yes man. Mm -hmm. And understand that if the guy who's your head coach is worth half his weight that when you're in the office and you're watching film or you got an idea and you present it to him, you got to be ready to present, not only present new ideas to him, but um, be ready to argue those points. So be good at what you're doing, but also don't be a yes man. Uh, and um, if you can, do, you know, be loyal, don't be a yes man, and then be patient and understand that that it takes time. It, it t- these things take time there the way the lacrosse world is built and you could draw a simple triangle there are you know hundreds hundred more of division three coaches and then division two coaches and and then the division one thing becomes a real you know real slim point of the triangle yep. uh, and us older guys we're not going to leave real quick unless we get forced to leave you know mm-hmm. so uh, you, you got to be patient you've got to be willing to um, move anywhere well, I remember when I came home from that interview at RIT around December 20th, uh, you know, as I said, my wife was nine months pregnant, uh, ready to have a baby, and we both grew up on Long Island. Everything was good. I was a head football coach, head lacrosse coach at a great high school. I was around my friends, uh, and I told her we're, we're moving to Rochester, New York on January 29th, which is about the worst time you can ever move to upstate New York, as you know. <laughs> you know, <Yep. laughs> uh, I, that could have been the end. But but you know, nobody. Uh, Ray had done a great job at RIT, starting to build the program. I knew we could do well. I knew some of the players that were there. And as an assistant coach, you can't. Don't be picky. You know, mm-hmm. there steps to it. You yep. got to take on. Take on programs that maybe aren't as good as you thought they were or as good as you want the one to be. Mm-hmm. Um, take pride in building programs. But most of all, I think, is you know get the experience for your athletes, the ones that you're coaching at that time, and put your heart and soul into those kids. Gotcha. And if you do that, all of those, all those traits are going to come back and make you stronger because you're going to go through some ups and downs, but they're also going to make you a head coach eventually uh, make you a better head coach because you'll understand uh, what your assistant coaches are going through.
0: Yep. Awesome. That's great. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, I want to move forward to your, your first term as head coach. This is, this is RIT in 1982. Um, you know, sort of your, not your first head coaching job, obviously you, you were a head coach in high school, but this is your first head coaching job in college. Um, that first time around, um, what, were some of the, what were some of the lessons that you learned that first year?
1: <laughs> well, so many. I had to. I had to learn how to do six weeks of preseason in a gym between ten at night and midnight, and then be up every morning for an eight o'clock uh, eight o'clock conditioning class because I had to teach phys ed at the time.
0: Okay. So
1: number one, I had to learn how to how to get on with not much sleep. Um, and uh, but I, I think obviously the biggest thing um, uh, was was recruiting. You know, I had never, never done recruiting. You know, when you're in high school, you get the kids you get. Yeah. And so i uh, never been that. So I had to get right to work in high school, um, uh, in recruiting and went right back to my roots. I remember my first recruiting trip was to Levittown Memorial, was to Levittown Division, was to Massapequa, you know, yeah. all these places that I knew in like Farmingdale yep. and I actually got some kids at, out of those places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was, that was the biggest part, uh. Uh, of learning that, um, mm-hmm. you know, just just being out there and and having to know that I had it pretty much to do, do everything. and, uh, as I said, practicing in a gym was it was a kind of a new experience, especially for six week terms. So we had to make make up a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember um, I remember going upstairs my first night of practice. I had been in Rochester for two days and walked into the gym and Luckily, Eddie Purcell, whose son Ryan plays for me now here at, our, at, uh, here at, at Denver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Purcell and Tommy Sill, who had played for me at Leathertown. I walked up to the gym. I looked at this, this, this crew of ragamuffins. Uh, <laughs> I, had, I had guys with bandanas on. I had guys with shorts over their sweats. Mm-hmm. I had guys with cleats on in the gym. I had guys with sticks that looked like they were falling apart, and I called Eddie and Tommy over, and I said, I'm going downstairs for the next 15 minutes. You tell these guys what the rules are about <laughs> bandanas and hair and wearing shorts over their sweats, and I'm going to come back up, and it better look different. Now, these were two freshmen at the time yeah. that were only there like four months, but they knew my act. And so, uh, you know, we had to get through some rough spots, And uh, but thankfully Ray had left the... Uh, the, the the talent of the program was much better than I thought, and we ended up uh, we ended up doing real well those three years, the last two years making the NCAA tournament, the final year making the final four of Division three back then, and uh, yeah. so you know you you learn so much. It's it's a it's a sharp it's a sharp learning curve when you're the only guy around and the only time first time you've been in in college coaching.
0: Yeah, yeah, it it, se- it seems like you have a knack for. Uh, you know, when I look at your coaching career in college, it seems like you have a knack of going to a school that's that's underdeveloped and turning around. Um, we we'll get we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I'm curious uh, because there's one question that I've that I've asked a lot of the people who have been on the podcast, um, and I always get the best answers from this. Um, and it's mostly been in their their playing career. But I'm interested um, what your answer would be as a coach um, since. RIT was your first coaching job. If you were to go back and do that over, what were some of the things that you wish you can do again or do differently?
1: Well, but certainly some of the things I would do differently, and you've seen me, Joe, and I've known your family forever, is uh, I wouldn't have said some of the things that I've said to some of the young men I've coached <laughs> over the years. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's pretty embarrassing, uh, and, you know, whether it's RIT or Hopkins or... Or Princeton, and, and even some of the guys here at Denver. Although I, I've gotten better, uh, that when they say things that you said to them, and you look at them and go, "I never said that," and then five <laughs> of the others look at you and say, "Oh yeah, you did, coach." <laughs> and
0: So,
1: um, somewhat embarrassing. Um, but uh, you know, I I think I was so blessed in in, in every in every job I had to recognize. Uh, If I've got a trait, it's to recognize how lucky I've been in Mm -hmm. my career, how lucky I've been every day in my life, with my family, with my children, with my jobs, with everything I've had. um, That it's uh, you know certainly you made mistakes. Certainly Mm -hmm. there were things that you know you you acted out on. I remember at RIT one time we lost a tough game, and and uh, I started going around the locker room telling each guy individually. Mm how he screwed the team. And I got to about the fourth or fifth guy and I'm, I'm just going, this is wrong.
0: Yeah. This is
1: wrong. And, I, and so I just stopped. Mm-hmm. And I just said, okay, let's just move on. You know, we, we stunk that day and let's move on. And I think I learned a lesson from that. Um, yeah. You know, to, to make general statements uh, in, in public and then if you have an individual thing to say, um, bring the kid into the office and talk to him about that. Gotcha. But um you know, uh you know, uh, just just lots of things you would look back as far as game day operations, game day strategies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all those. But I think that goes hand in hand with being a coach and I think that goes with uh, you're gonna you're to make mistakes here and there. Yeah. And just knowing that if, if you if you love your kids even to, to them, sometimes it doesn't seem like love. Yeah. You know, when you bet them or you leave them home from a trip or you make them go to class or you, or you suspend them for alcohol or something like that, mm-hmm. that um, if you love your players, real love, that everything's going to be okay. Yep,
0: yep. And, and, that's, and that's sort of where, uh, you know, to go to your earlier point where you said you take back some of the things that you say on the sideline, that's all coming from that's all coming from a passion it's not coming from uh you know from a bad place or to actually you're not you don't actually mean those things you're (laughs) you're 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 so fired up and saying certain things on the sideline because you love your kids and you love the game you want to win is that right
1: yeah Yeah. no question and you want them in my own stupid way back then when i was 30 years old you know you want them to be better people from having played for you Mm -hmm. and uh you know, uh, and and it's really more, less in games really than than in practice, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, because practice, you get the repetitions over and over again and you see so many more mistakes in practice than hopefully in games and so, um, you know, it's, uh, so, so that, that that probably is, is my greatest regret with some of those things but I think even those kids, as you said, they know you're passionate, they know you're pulling for them and, and uh, as long as they have, you know, meaningful careers and great friendships and and great memories from it. Uh, they forgive some of your stupidity as yep. you get older.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So um, so let's move on to when you take when you take over Princeton. Um, you know, so like I mentioned, it's a underdeveloped program. Um, but at this point in your career, you had over um, ten years of coaching experience. Um, what were some of the goals and some of the things that you tried to take into this program? Um, you know, how, how did you approach that challenge?
1: Well, I think two things. Number one, you mentioned it, that I had kind of built a resume on turning programs around or, or getting better results than they had previously had. Mm-hmm. And obviously that didn't happen at Hopkins with lacrosse, but, uh, it happened with soccer. Um, and I think that the people at Princeton, when they hired me, they knew I was a member of the Hopkins lacrosse staff, Bob Meisluk, who was my AD who hired me. Saw us saw us win the national championship in 1987, mm-hmm. um, you know, at Rutgers. So he saw that game against Cornell. Saw us beat Maryland in the semifinals, and so they knew there was a lacrosse background. But um, Hopkins, and, and when I took over at Hopkins soccer program, they had had one winning year in 50 years of soccer. Mm-hmm. And um, my last two years, we went 14 and three and made the NCAA wow. tournament in my last year. So. I think they felt like there was something to helping turn around a program. And, and what I called it was my, my, my blueprint for, mm-hmm. for, for turning around a program. And, and, and number one, it, and number one, as I told them, it starts with, it starts with discipline. You, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I told the kids here that when I came to Denver, you know, all those years later. And so, um, you know, Princeton had had an amazing history of lacrosse. They had won national championships in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and then it kind of had fallen on some harder times in the 70s. And then uh, done great had great results in the Ivy League for the first 20 years of Ivy League lacrosse play, uh, and then fell on some hard times. And so I knew there was a history there. I knew, uh, uh, unlike say here at Denver, where you know you had a hundred years of lacrosse history at Princeton, and yeah. for most part. It, it was good so you could call on those people to be supportive Uh, you could call on those people to be uh, financially supportive Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the amazing things about Princeton University is that everybody that goes there recognizes that uh, how blessed they are and giving back to the program or to the school is part of their expectation and so I felt like our our core was there we didn't have a hell of a lot of talent, you know, when I first got there. And so I knew then step two after discipline was what I mentioned before was recruiting. You know, you got to go out and get there. And, yeah. I, and I went into some homes of some young men. Uh, my first recruit was Justin Tortolani, who's one of the premier spinal surgeons now in Baltimore. And wow. guy after guy after guy, I just went in and sold them on Princeton because I couldn't promise them a heck of a lot. Uh, you know, as far as the past of across. But I told him, you know, and Mike Mariano, who told this story after we won the 92 National Championship and my first recruits were seniors, he said that I said uh, in our first meeting that we're going to win a national championship. Huh. And uh, I said that, I guess, but, uh, you know, God <laughs> knows if I, I believed it or not. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so so I think I think just uh, having, having gone... Going way back to Great Neck South. If you go into the Great Neck South gym right now, it's still there's still one one league championship in lacrosse there, and that was in 1979. And then you go to you go to uh, RIT and Ray had done a great job building it, but they had never been to an NCAA tournament. and We had three great years there, Hopkins soccer, and then so you know you you know you just go through the career. I had just been very lucky to have those opportunities to help the program get a little bit better. I had a blueprint for it, mm-hmm. and luckily at the time when I got to Princeton, they, it was the right time and the right place to uh, to, to in, impart those those ways, so to speak. We had a lot of support, yeah. uh, an amazing school, and a great place, and uh, mm-hmm. we were able to get it done pretty quickly.
0: So I'll ask you more about the blueprint in a second, but, but I'm curious, because this has always stuck out to me. Um, if you don't mind, could you dive a little deeper into how you went about recruiting those first couple of years? Because I would imagine that, yeah, that is a pretty tough sell when you're, you know, trying to get the top kids in the nation to come to a school that, um, you know, for years and years hasn't uh, been to a national championship game or a Final Four. Um, how do you approach that? What's your, uh, what's your mindset? I mean, obviously, it's easy to, to recruit for for a school like Princeton from the academic point of view, but how, how do you do it from uh, talking to a kid who wants to play lacrosse at college and wants to win a national championship? How do you get them to come to a team that hasn't really shown a history of that?
1: Well, you know, uh, uh, first and foremost was uh, what you said. First and foremost, I said, hey, if, even, if, even if this doesn't work, you're gonna get a degree from the greatest undergraduate school in the, in the country. Mm-hmm. So that was first and foremost, because all the kids had to be great students. Yeah. But, but what I looked for, is the, uh, my first rule was, don't recruit anybody out of a losing program. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have club teams back then; it was all high school. Mm-hmm. So you had, uh, you know, Justin and Mal Maestrel from Manhasset. You know, those guys just, uh, you know, wh- where was I going to go to? You know, yeah. why not go to, why not go to Manhasset from, from Princeton? You know, mm-hmm. it, it made so much sense. Um, mm-hmm. You know, start with that. So, so number one, it was kids from winning programs. Number two, it was kids that had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder that the big boys didn't recruit them. You know, uh, I remember uh, some of the guys, uh, um, you know, back then, back then, you know, Cornell was in its heyday, and there were a couple of our guys, Greg Waller, Mike Mariano, some of those guys, they were a little upset that they didn't get recruited by Cornell. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I tried to play that factor. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, so number one, winning teams. Number two, guys with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, maybe felt like they were overlooked, um, you know, in the process. Maybe, you know, I could play up that, man, uh, that, yeah, maybe that coach doesn't think you're so good uh, from some of those other teams. But I yeah. think you're great, you know. Yeah. And, then, and, then, and then number three, playing time. Look, mm-hmm. we were we've won four games, four Ivy League games in the last four years. You're going to come in here and you're going to start as freshman. I can promise you that because there's uh-huh. not a lot. We had some good players that were in the program at the time, Rob Palumbo, and um, and, a, and a lot of those those guys were good players, mm-hmm. but not a lot of them. Yeah, not, you know, we had Paul DeBello was a really good midfielder and stuff, mm-hmm. and so. You know, so now you're talking about passion. You're talking about winners. You're talking about guys with a chip on their shoulder. You're talking about letting them play. You're yeah. talking about going to the to a great school. Um, you know, I talked to them about myself and 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 how we. You know, I had experience building. You know, taking programs from being a little downtrodden to going to being the best. Mm-hmm. And I told them we we're gonna we're gonna win. We're gonna win with you being a major major part of this and. Uh, and then, of course, you talk about the normal recruiting stuff, the beautiful campus, the yep. locale for a lot of those guys was within two hours, the Baltimore guys, the Long Island guys. It was a great location. Mm-hmm. Um, I promised them we'd play a great schedule. We opened up at Hopkins every year. We had the Ivy League. All those teams were really good. I told them they'd play against the best, and uh, mm-hmm. if we took some lumps, we'd take some lumps. But I just tried to get them excited about picturing themselves uh, In a program that they were going to have a huge part of resurrecting.
0: Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's great advice. And I'd imagine, um, especially the part about the chip on your shoulder, that advice is even more relevant today as the player pool, um, you know, gets bigger and bigger.
1: we're we're still doing the same now. You know, the the big boys don't want you. Come on out to Denver.
0: (laughs) Yep. yep. Yeah. All right. So. I believe these numbers are accurate Uh, I'm sure you don't have them written down anywhere but uh, so it looks like you're you're 30 and 12 in NCAA tournament games and and of those games you're you're 14 and four uh, with in one goal games Um, that's really unbelievable when you look at those numbers how do you prepare your teams to win those close games those one goal games
1: that's uh, funny, Joe. When, when I remember when we won the the last national championship at Princeton in two thousand one, as you know, my son Trevor was our goalie. Yeah. At, at the and and uh, um, played a great game, beat Syracuse in overtime. And um, I remember going to the post game, you know, media thing, and uh, and one of the reporters asked Trevor that exact question. He huh. Said, you know, it was of our six national championships, four were in overtime, and you know, obviously, one goal games with a few more one goalers in there to get to the, to get there, um, and and what Trevor's answer, that probably much better than my answer could be, was he makes life so miserable in practice <laughs> that that the games are fun, and we know that there's never going to be as much pressure in a game as there is in practice, and uh-huh. I thought that was pretty cool, you yeah. know, from a 21 year old to to. Especially whose dad was sitting down at the table from him, um, you know, to to put it in that kind of perspective. I think, I think, if, you know, clearly there's so much pressure now, and there's so much, there's so many great coaches, so many great teams, and great with great players that there's going to be a lot of one goal games, and yeah. so you know, not panicking in when those situations come up. Um, Preparing them beforehand that they might come up. Yeah. You know, we always say every every game before we play, we say, "Okay, let's get ready for 60 great minutes or more, mm-hmm. and be and be ready to go, and uh, and know that um, it could be close. That these teams want to play against you, you want to play against them, and it could be close. Just stay poised, do the yeah. things we do in practice, and uh, good things will happen. Yeah. So. So how are
0: you raising the stakes in practice? Can you, uh, go, go into a little bit more about how you make it miserable for them. Sorry to leave you hanging with a little bit of a cliffhanger, but come back on Thursday to hear the second part and the conclusion of my interview with Coach Tierney. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Joe Yevoli Podcast. If you like the podcast, please take a second to give it a positive review on iTunes. This helps more people find the podcast You can find more episodes on joeyavoli.com. And if you want to be able to ask questions to upcoming guests and suggest topics or interviews you'd like to hear, subscribe to my newsletter at joeyavoli.com. You can follow me on Twitter at joeyavoli. Until next time, keep working and keep getting better.